This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And I'm the founder of Think Productive. We work with some of the world's leading companies to help people get stuff done, but more importantly, to help people to make space for what matters. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is Julie Nerney. Julie is the author of Own Your Day, New Light on the Mastery of Managing in the Middle. She's worked at the heart of government and played a key leadership role in the London 2012 Olympics. And she's also a Sussex-dwelling Aston Villa fan, just like me, which is how we first met. In this episode, we talk about the unique pressures of middle management. And Julie offers some great advice on how to do meetings, how to disagree productively, and how to build trust and influence as a manager. This is Julie Nerney. So we're recording this on a, a midweek morning as uh, as as we start to exit out of um, COVID lockdown and make some of those uh, transitions. Uh, what's um, what's been the last uh, few weeks for you? Um, what what's been your sort of experience of COVID and potentially post COVID? Oh, the the days getting lighter have made a difference. That's for sure. Because mm. lockdown in January, February was tough, wasn't it? So it I was. Think a combination of the days getting lighter, the vaccination rate rolling out. There's a, there's a cautious hope, I think, cautious optimism. Yeah, I'm feeling that too. Which um, we definitely felt as as Villa fans earlier in the year about our football season, and it seems to have dissipated our cautious optimism about Villa, doesn't it? Yeah, but short termism versus long termism. I, I think I think. Compared to last season, we're doing really well. Another few buys in the summer will be grand. Yeah. So, and we kind of, so we kind of met through Aston Villa, right? Um, so we're both living in Sussex and members of the Sussex Lions, which whenever I've talked to people about Sussex Lions, they just think it's just this mad thing. So do you want to just explain what Sussex Lions is? Uh, so Sussex Lions, that's a collection of like-minded souls with excellent taste in football, i.e. they support Aston Villa, <laughs> but have made the ridiculous choice not to live anywhere near the ground. So uh, yeah, yeah. We, we have a kindred spirit of supporting a club that's 260-odd miles away. And so uh, there's a nice social network <clears> and fraternity of, of, of people who share the highs and lows of being an Aston Villa fan. It's a, it's a nice place to be when you're a long way from Villa Park. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I really love about that as well is, um, and it's the same... So I've got a season ticket on the Holt end at Villa and like the guy who sits in front of me was quite senior at Cadbury's Chocolate. And then there's another guy that um, I think worked at Rover. And yeah, those are like the most, I suppose those are the most stereotypical jobs that um, most people in Birmingham would do, right? But you have this like real mix of people. And in Sussex Lions, there, there's every everything from like tradesmen to teachers to social workers and all kinds of different people who are all just sort of united by this... Um, love of a generally crap football team right who have uh, got a bit better uh recently but i suppose i gravitated really naturally to to you and a couple of others just because of the nature of a lot of the work that you've done over the years um and we've had some really fascinating uh conversations about work before but like so my first question because i'd love to talk about a couple of the jobs that you've done in the past but my first question is like how do you describe what you do because when you look at your LinkedIn profile and everything else, like you've got all these non-exec director roles, you've been a chair of lots of stuff, you've been a CEO of lots of stuff, but like there's so many different facets to to you and what you do. Like, how do you how do you describe it if you're in a lift with someone? Uh, badly <laughs> is the answer. I wish I wish I had a tagline. Uh, my other half tells me she fixes stuff. Is is the shorthand. Um, uh, it, which is simplistic but neat, I guess. Um, it is the common thread through all the different types of roles and sectors. It's about driving and securing change, but doing that in a way that's got kindness and compassion at, at its heart. So it's about yeah, you know, yeah. cultures. It's about creating environments that allow people to excel. So whether you're sitting on a board where you know you're the most senior 
strategic guiding mind in an organisation and you're setting the tone, whether you're, you're in there with your sleeves rolled up in a chief exec or, or an interim role, or whether I'm speaking or teaching or mentoring or coaching, it, it's that's the common thread for me. It's about creating environments that allow people to be the best version of themselves. Um, yeah. And I think that's 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 the job of us all, isn't it? You do that and that's where the magic happens. What's um, Harvey Keitel's character in, is it Pulp Fiction, where he's like Mr. Fox or something? And it's like, something's gone wrong. And it's like, we phoned Mr. Fox and he's sort of like, so maybe you're like the Mr. Fox, Mrs. Fox of, uh, yeah, uh, of sort of public and private sector. Sometimes it's not all negative places. You know, I've done stuff which has been about organisations in crisis or turnaround. Yeah, but yeah. sometimes it's, you know, working with startups have got a really exciting new thing that they want to take to market or helping businesses who are on that kind of, they outgrown where they're at and they're going on to the next phase of their development. So um, it, it's it's not necessarily, it's why the fix it bit is a bit simplistic, but it is about kind of the catalyst for change, I think. Yeah, yeah. And we'll come back to the empathy and kindness um, part of that later on as well. Um, I suppose a couple of the roles that you've done that I wanted to pick out. Um, one was you were the head of transport integration for the London 2012 Olympics or LOCOG as it was at the time. Um, so you worked for on, on the Olympics for most of the year before and then through that period and just after the Olympics happened in 2012. So what was that like? I'd love to hear more about that. So uh, I always say to people, it's probably the thing I'll be most proud of because what a great showcase for the country. There was something optimistic and happy about that time. Maybe there's rose-tinted glasses with the, with the decade that's uh, that's come since then. Uh, but I never want to work like that again in my life because it was just <laughs> so utterly and unrelentlessly uh, uh, relentlessly demanding. I, I think part of the challenge was... Um, when Olympics uh, set up and you have the committees, you have all the different functional areas and transport is just one of many. And you, you get your leadership team in place four years out, you lock down your plans with a year to go, you're good. And for a whole host of reasons, they'd had a change in leadership. So they didn't get a transport director till not long before I joined. And I joined in October 2011. So we right. had like 23 yeah. people and we had 23,000 at the time of the Games. So we had to do four years worth of work in a year. And then add to that that our operation started early because when the athletes started to arrive from April and May and going to training mm, camps, we were transporting yeah, yeah. people. Then we had to run the operation, convert it all through the game. So I did 70 consecutive night shifts um, wow. throughout okay. uh, the games and the Paralympics. And then you have all the knowledge transfer and the handover to the IAC. And you've got Rio and Brazil at the time there yeah. learning for next time. So it was fundamentally the most intense period of my working life. I mean, I, I, it was just over a year seven days a week, 20 hour days, me or my boss in tears at two o'clock in the morning going, it can't be done. As long as one of us was in tears, it was fine. Both of us being in tears <laughs> was, would have been a disaster. But it, but it, it, and it's a great example of how, you know, people think, oh, it must be easy because everybody wanted the Olympics to succeed. No, what wasn't that easy. And transport mm. in London, you know, a lot of my friends said that's career <clears throat> suicide, you know, don't touch it. Um, so it was difficult stakeholder environment. There was a lot of politics. But I think it's a, a real lesson in the power of purpose and people to make the impossible happen. We shouldn't have been able to do that in a year. We really shouldn't. Um, mm, and the fact yeah, that yeah. It, it went so well, we were all exhausted afterwards. But, you know, there was, there's a sense of pride um, about being involved in something on that national scale as well. So, yeah, there are lots of tales I could tell from behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, I suppose the one thing just in terms of how we experience the impact of our work I'd imagine just because you had such a lot riding on every day and you're doing 24-hour days did you get much of a chance were there moments while the Olympics were on where you could actually savor it and go yeah I played a role in this yeah and I think the, the organization was very good at doing that so um, for the opening ceremony they did three dress rehearsals where everybody working on the games got to go to the stadium mm. and see a dress rehearsal and brilliantly, you know, Danny Boyle came out at the start and said, you could tweet and you could tell the world about this, but you'll really ruin it. And not a soul yeah, did. Yeah. So three stadiums full of people never let anything slip about anything that came in the opening ceremony. So that was great. And um, and we applied for, for balloted tickets. And if we got tickets to events, I had a day. I worked the night shift. I went to the park, had a day watching the events. <laughs> And then went back, which was probably a bit foolish, wow. but I just wanted yeah, yeah. a day to soak up, soak up the atmosphere. So there, there definitely were real moments and, and moments of celebration in the team, you know, in the, in the two week um, uh, handover between the Olympics and the Paralympics, there was time for us all to, you know, 
high five each other. Remember when we could do that, you know, in a room together and hug each other and all that kind of exactly. stuff. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It does feel like, like you say, it does feel like slightly a bygone era already, doesn't it? But I remember I, I got to go to the park for one of the days and just all of the volunteers that were there and like the atmosphere that they created, it just felt like you were kind of walking into this kind of world of just super positivity and just just the energy around it was incredible, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a very positive, wasn't it? It was it was wanting to showcase us to the world and there was a pride and a pride yeah. that isn't yeah. that kind of... Um, that, that can turn into kind of the, the patriotism that flips the other side, but a warm pride. Um, yeah, about about yeah, the yeah. things that, about our nation. I like the celebration of the NHS in the middle of the opening ceremony. Things mm. that that are part of our culture and our DNA. I think so. Yeah, it was it was a great time, wasn't it? Yeah, and you also worked for the cabinet office, and I remember talking to you uh, about some of your tales from just working at the heart of government as well. So, um, tell us about that. Uh, I have the utmost respect for civil servants um, because they. Uh, have that impartiality they serve any minister and any government for what they need to do um i am probably too opinionated to do that for a long period of time <laughs> and there are certainly some politicians i've enjoyed working with less than others um and uh, I... you're gonna name are you gonna name the names for us well, I think having weekly meetings with Michael Gove was probably my <laughs> development opportunity of a lifetime to have got through that for 12 months and not actually have slapped him once. I think I'd still consider one of my proudest achievements. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you know what? I really did not expect you to answer that question. So thank you for being honest. That's amazing. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't mind. As I said, I'm too opinionated. And I don't think I'll, I'll ever want to work for Michael Gove again. So I don't think I've burnt any bridges there. You're fine. <laughs> um, I actually, uh, did some work that ended up being for Michael Gove um, a few years ago as well. When I was in my my youth volunteering um, phase um, and running student volunteering England, and then after that, I was I was a, a consultant doing um, work around youth volunteering strategy, and I ended up doing um, basically working on the policy that then became National Citizen Service, and so a lot of that got um, presented to Michael Gove, and I only. I was only in a room with him, I think, twice or maybe three times. But, like, just what an odd man. <laughs> like, just really, like, strange. <laughs> just felt like a human who'd not had any of the same human experiences as anyone else. <laughs> I think there's something interesting there about politicians, about motivation. And, and honestly, you know, we need we need great governments and we need strong democracies. And it's yeah, a thankless yeah, task, yeah. isn't it? I mean, it really is. And particularly in the last year. Whatever the opinion about the government and the choices they've made, it's just a, it's a tough old job. But I think there's a difference, aren't there, between the kind of people who are ideologically driven and the people who are in it for themselves. And the thing, the positive thing about Michael Gove is he's got an ideology that he actually believes in. And actually, then as somebody to work with and manage and try and influence, you know, there's a position. Whereas yeah. I've worked with you know other what the politicians. compass is. Yeah. yeah, other politicians where it's about what suits them and mm. they, they'll flip all over the place because they want what will help them most. And, and that's both really hard to work with and really disingenuous as well, given the, the roles that they have. So, you know, it, I might not have seen eye to eye with him, but at least he was consistent. Yeah, right. Um, and you've worked, you've done a lot of work where you've been a chair or a vice chair um, of various public bodies, including Brighton and Sussex University Hospitals NHS Trust and Brighton College. You've also, as you mentioned, worked with startups, you've worked in central government, you know, you've worked in the private sector. Um, do you have any particular kind of lessons that you think any of those sectors could learn from each other? Like, I'm interested in what, what, you've, what you've found as being fundamentally different in those different environments. That's a great question. I, th I think um, there's an element of complacency in easily funded environments versus um, urgency in those that aren't. Um, yeah. there's a different energy that comes from size and scale. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that you can't create that energy in larger organisations. It's just as organisations grow, they kind of bolt on lots of process, which, which sometimes limits things around them. But actually, there's more commonality than there is difference. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And I often find this having worked in, in lots of different sectors and particularly in, in my interim work. People, oh, we want somebody who knows sector X or sector Y. And actually what you want here is some leadership, some change management expertise, the ability to galvanise a team of people and get stuff done. 
I can learn about what you call things in this part of the world. Yeah. But there is that yeah. parochial nature, I think, sometimes in sectors that makes them quite closed to, to different expertise, um, which I think is can be limiting. Um, but I think it's changing. And, and I think there's much more, the challenges that organisations face, are, that there's much more in common than there, that there is that there's different. Yeah. And a lot of what you've done has been about creating change, leading change. Um, and I saw a thing that you wrote recently, which is around uh, productive tension as well. So I'd love to talk a bit about that in terms of how people disagree. Um, but just in terms of the change part, before we get into that. So what what do you think are the most important things? How do you approach change management? So like when you're when you're sort of first in a new interim role or you're non-exec director, how do you look at the situation to then uh, really set an organization up for, for embracing change in the right kind of way? So there's the framing and then there's what you do about it. So the first thing is always what's the outcome people are trying to achieve? with big changes and change programs, I get very focused on the inputs, you know, Gantt charts and milestones, and we're going to do this by when. I kind of lose sight of the North Star and why they're mm. doing it. And particularly for medium to longer term change programs and transformations, the only certain thing about a plan at the start of it is that it's wrong. And I mean, that, that's <laughs> with no judgment on the quality of the work that will have been done. It'll be some excellent thinking, but it's all based on assumptions. And unless you've got yeah, a crystal yeah. ball, for anything that's longer than six months out, how do you know what's going to happen? Even if it's just unforeseen bumps in the road when you're delivering, let alone any contextual changes or organisational changes. So there's something about being more relaxed about the input end of things and letting the route to the destination be whatever it needs to be. You know, you might not need know you need to take a fork in the road until you happen upon that junction. But as long as you know where you're heading kind of doesn't matter what route you're getting there so I try at the yeah. start to make sure the framing's clear what's the outcome we're trying to achieve when will we know we've got there what does success look like let's let's not worry about how the route let's let's be focused on the destination and then when it comes to actually doing it it's about the how not the what yeah every countless organizations get obsessed with the what we're going to implement a new IT system lovely shiny new boxes and screens over here but nobody's thought about the change journey people have got to go on the change of their behavior and, and they always leave the change bit till the end um, because that looks mm, like a bunch yeah. of overhead and a bunch of effort and chatting and time when we want to be putting the boxes and the wires in or the process or the thing or whatever it is that they're changing so you know i say this all that i have a pound for every time i said this i'd probably be very wealthy the how always trumps the what start with the how not the what the what will follow yeah okay um, so yeah those are my kind of two two principles really nice and then so this idea of productive tension so how how do you deal with it where you've got people who perhaps disagree with the change how do you deal with it where you've got a board of people who disagree like just the the whole notion of disagreement in our day-to-day -day lives feels like something that we're less and less comfortable with so yeah what what, what do you think is important in terms of how we disagree it's interesting isn't there? there's some there's this desire for consensus and harmony and, and there's this tribe but you see it in society don't this kind of tribalism you belong to your tribe rather than being able to appreciate other points of view yeah um, and a, a slight meander to answer your question i remember seeing armando anuccio said this at an event once we we're talking about fake news and they had lots of great speakers and he said something right at the end to say we've forgotten how to debate when i was at school i was told to argue a point for 10 minutes and then argue the other perspective we don't yeah. do that yeah. anymore yeah we just root ourselves in our own opinions and our own perspectives so there's so something about being prepared to see another person's point of view there's something fundamental for me about curiosity and being open to, to and having an inquiring mind and not being defensive about closing things down. But I think how you make it work in teams is, is you're overt about it. And you kind of almost need to contract around how you're going to work and how you're going to operate to create an environment that makes that OK. So if I think about boards where we've chaired, uh, where I've chaired, I, I'm always amazed when I join a board, when I ask board members, what's the purpose of the board and what's their role? I've never joined a board yet where that's common. Because mm, right. they all join for different yeah. reasons and they have different motivations. So one, a bit like the outcome <clears throat> point, what are we here to do? And, and how are we going to work together to deliver that? And part of that is going to be dealing with difficult stuff. We're not always going to agree. Uh, you know, we need that cabinet responsibility when we leave the room. And, you know, if people have lost the argument that they'll still stand behind things. Right. And so there's there's variants and flavors on that. But you kind of have that conversation to say, what, what does our value set? What does our behavioral framework, whatever you want to call it, look like for this group of people? 
And then how are we going to hold each other to account for it? So again, if I think about boards that I've taken on, on that kind of journey, we contract around it and then we, we start to create a culture of feedback and we give each other feedback about how we're doing. Um, and sometimes you need to start gently with that. It can be anonymous surveys. But as the team matures and you get the confidence that the challenge is coming constructively from a pace of respect, that it's grounded in the way you're working, you then end up in a place where you get to the end of a meeting. I used to have open sessions to go, how did we do today? And we'd have our six principles, you know, were we forward facing enough rather than backward facing? Uh, how did we add value to the work of the executive here? Because frankly, if we didn't, what's the point of us here as a board, right? Um, did yeah, did everybody's yeah. voices get heard? Was there enough dissent in the debate? Was it too comfortable? Uh, and we actually ask each other that question and we make it okay to have that productive tension. So it's got kind of creating a permission environment really, but you have to contract around that and you have to be overt about it because otherwise people bring in their own preferences their own motivations their own kinds of things and you you don't have a common common goal to 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 focus around yeah i love the idea that to have productive tension and to have a healthy you know debate and disagreement you kind of have to work at that for it to be for it to be an environment where that's going to be constructive at the end of it otherwise like you say people bring in their their own ways to disagree that would be less healthy but yeah, the idea that you've got to kind of work at creating the right kind of environment to, to be able to disagree, that's really interesting. Well, it's the culture, the culture of that team, isn't it? Um, and, and in some teams, you, you want to actively, you know, if you think about the kind of startup environment, you, you almost want to actively create create that dissonance because you want new yeah. ideas and you want iteration and evolution and, and, and a really pointy challenge. In other environments, you might want a productive tension that looks a bit different. So it's being conscious about the culture you want for that team in that organization at whatever point that team is and that organization is in its life cycle right you need different things yeah. at different yeah. times yeah. yeah interesting um there's loads of stuff in your book that i'd love to talk to you about so you've written this book uh with diana marsland uh called own your day um which yeah really interesting i've only just got sent it recently so i've been kind of scanning uh scanning through bits of it um but what comes out over very quickly is that it's a book very consciously written for middle managers. And I'd love to just hear more about what you think are the particular challenges of people in middle management roles and why was why was that the focus, um, you know, for this book? So I have to give Diana the credit for this. So um, I've always wanted to write a book, but I've never got around, around to it. And Diana approached me really passionate about doing something purposeful and practical for people in middle management. So she'd also been in non-exec roles and, and lots of organisations and she was trying to help but realised she could only reach the odd group of people. And she thought, if I could write a book, I can reach a, a, a wider audience. Mm. And she was convinced that there was this kind of the powerhouse in the organisations was stuck between strategy and delivery uh, and kind of demands from the top, trying to manage the team, always on culture, and how could we do stuff that kind of liberated people because that's where the potential in organisations were. And her enthusiasm was infectious and I was really keen to do it. And the other thing that struck me was she was absolutely convinced that we had to ground this in research with our audience. So we brainstormed what we thought the barriers were for, for people managing in the middle of organisations. But then we went out and did primary research. Well, when I say we, Diana, perfect team. We have complementary skills. <laughs> I would have driven <laughs> nice, me bananas. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she went out and did the research, focus groups, surveys, got lots of data, came back, told us it was some things we were right, but some things we were completely wrong on. So mm. one of the things I'm really pleased about the book is it's grounded in research. It's grounded by what managers told us. If we could solve these things that would help kind of release our potential. And um, it's always a risk when you do that because you might get stuff that comes back, you know, have we got anything to say about those things and have yeah, we got stuff yeah, that, yeah, that we can yeah. write about? Um, but it falls broadly into, into, into two sections. So one is about the environment that managers are having to operate in, you know, the increasingly ambiguous and changing world uh, of work. Uh, and, and, and what that what that's doing in organisations and how they navigate it. And then there's the second section is all about people and how they get the best out of themselves and others. Um, kind of a bit like we were talking about at the top of this conversation, really, to get the best yeah. out, of, uh, out of themselves and their teams. So um, I'm really pleased that it's grounded in what people told us that they wanted. So, yeah, there's eight, four themes in each of the two two categories. Yeah, so you did research to to look at what, people were actually struggling with around middle management versus what you thought they might be struggling with. And you said that there were some things that 
you were surprised by or things that you were wrong about. So I'd love to hear more about what those are. So what particularly surprised you when, when the research came back? Uh, so what surprised us was there were the, some of the things were much more what I would call timeless challenges. So we were expecting it to be much more about, you know, 21st century working, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, when you looked at the themes, they're perennial challenges that have been mm. around for decades, actually. You know, all about kind of ownership and influence, change, leading teams, creating cultures. They've, they've existed in time memorial. So, of course, the world of work has changed and the way we might deploy some of those things are different. But it was much less um, kind of topically focused, if I were to say, immediately um, topically relevant and and, and much more enduring, which actually gave it more appeal because it was, well, actually, we need to, if we solve, crack these things, then we're cracking them for a while because they've been around for 30 years or so. Yeah, right, right. right. (laughs) Um, So so I think that, that was quite different. I think there was also something that came out really strongly was about meetings. Oh, bane of people's life. I mean, when we did the first set of research and people were spending two thirds of their time in meetings as we went through lockdown and we were validating with larger sample sizes, some of the themes that had shot up to to, to closer to 80 and 90 percent. You know, the Zoom culture, everything being structured, the corridor conversations not being able to happen. And, and, And that felt in the context of some of the other content in the book, really quite tactical. But it was such a big thing that came up with everybody we spoke to. We thought we can't not. We can't not address that. And um, um, we, you know, each each theme, the idea of the book is it's very practical. So it's, it should be easy and pithy to reach in and out of and then more information to come. If we'd known about how to fix meetings coming before we went to print, we could have signposted you, Mr. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not always that good at my own self-promotion. In fact, I have a, a team of people who are good at my self-promotion, but I still miss lots of those tricks. Um, but let's talk a bit about meetings then. So, um what I noticed from that section of the book, because obviously I gravitated there, um, you know, fairly quickly, is that uh, we're very much on the same page about a lot of this. But let's talk about some of your 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 ways that uh, you think people could really approach meetings in a better way. Well, I think there's something here at starting with purpose, which is kind of a theme of this conversation, really, isn't it? I've talked about outcomes and clarity. Mm. It's how many times do we all find ourselves in meetings? We go, why are we here? Yeah. My, my favourite sport is adding up the cost of a meeting. I sit mm. in the room and I think, okay, rough hour rate if we're here. And we're <clears> all sat here for two, three hours. This is a really expensive meeting. And actually back yeah. to your point about sectors, it's something the public sector are really bad at. So particularly because on one hand, we, it's needed to do collaboration across organisational boundaries. But everybody comes. I mean, there were some meetings in the education sector. I was in a room with literally with 50 people. Yeah. yeah, very senior people, very expensive. So there's something about purpose for me about why we're we doing it, uh, why we're we here, and, and outcomes. I, I have, you know, I'm, I'm busy as you've in, intimated already. I added up last week. I did 63 meetings, and people wow. go, "Oh my god, that's dreadful." But I go through. I don't add it up as an absolute. I go through and I go, "Did each one of those meetings drive something forward, resolve an issue, or add value?" And if they don't, I stop going to them. Mm. Um, yeah. So I don't mind being in meetings if it's purposeful, but that that so it's where it starts for me. If if it's not purposeful, that's that's what's irritating to people. I think at the root of the feedback we were getting in the yeah. research, and then you get into style and kind of how you manage the meetings and all those kinds of good things. But it, it starts with with a purposeful meeting. It starts with purpose, and I think purpose is like a twofold thing, isn't it? So the meeting has to have a purpose in terms of what we're trying to do and what's the outcome. And then there needs to be a purpose as to why each of those people is there. And what you're doing there is actually the work that the chair should be doing often in those meetings, isn't it? It's like you're working out if you added value, but really the chair of any meeting should be looking down the list and making sure that every single person has a reason for for being there or a, a specific thing that they're going to contribute. And there's routine, isn't there? There's that read across and particularly something Diana and I see in the NHS all the time. Last month's agenda becomes this month's agenda. It's like, yeah. really? Yeah. You know, do we, do we need to do that again? I was in a team meeting yesterday. Uh, we've been doing them fortnightly for six weeks and we went, how's it going? And we have a we, we have a feedback at the end of every meeting. Has this worked? What do we need to tweak and change? Yeah. And we all went, do you know what? We don't need this more than once a month and they don't need it to be more than 90 minutes. Let's can it. Great. Great. You know, yeah, it's not the shy like, of doing this. It becomes routinized and habitual, doesn't it? It's like the art of killing sacred cows, right? Because the chances are most of those meetings, they get started by a manager or a group of people who, for them, it's like their baby. It's their pet thing. And then 
if that person has left or whatever, it just becomes a thing that everybody sort of collectively owns. And then it feels sort of wrong to just let that go. But actually, it's it's one of the most powerful things you can do, I think, in organizations is is give people the space to just... So we, we follow in Think Productive the, um, the brew dog um, mantra. So one of brew dog's corporate values is smash shit up. And because they're like punks, right? That's like their punk ethos. But we take that really literally. Um, well, not literally as in we don't smash up the room, but like, we, you know, we, we, we apply that across the board with everything that we do. So once a year when we do our strategy thing, we have a little session where we go through and we look at the meetings that we're doing or initiatives that we have or products that we have, like right through to what we deliver for clients to everything behind the scenes and just have that mentality that like nothing is sacred, like everything has to have a purpose. And if it doesn't, we can get rid of it. And it's it's incredibly powerful, you know, just like you say, the cost of those meetings, if we do that with one meeting, but it's a once a week recurring thing, that's a huge saving of time over the course of a year and, and money and, and resource, you know. But it's about creating, you've created a permission environment where it's okay to do that. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and it's about a recognition that organisations aren't static things. They're responding to their environment. They might be changing strategy. They might need to deliver different things. Yet we still pursue the same tools to do yeah, different yeah. outcomes. It's like, actually, yeah. no, they're not, they're not static. And I was talking to somebody this morning uh, looking at governance for, for, for a board. And, and, you know, an organisation that has been through crisis is now coming out the other side. So the way the governance had to work needs to be completely different now. But but people don't want to let go of what they used to be doing because they're comfortable with it now. It's the, it's the new norm. And so you have to create that permission, don't you? That open, they say, no, we're going to stop yeah, yeah, and yeah, think yeah. about what we need now in order to make it to make it productive again. You, you said something in, I can't remember if it's one of your emails or books about if you're not saying no enough, um, you, you're, you're, you're probably doing stuff you shouldn't be. And I use yeah, it yeah, all the time yeah, with yeah. people. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like... like um, um, if the way to know if you're saying no regularly enough is if some of those no's are a bit uncomfortable because if everything that you're saying no to is just a really easy straight no then you're probably either still taking on too much or you're not creating the space for the stuff that matters even more and so like the art of the uncomfortable no i think is a really it's a really important um art in business right yeah well, people talk about prioritisation, but they never talk about what they're going to stop doing. Yeah, yeah. We probably need to create some space for something different, don't we? So we need to start with no. Indeed. The other thing people talk about is, um, like, I've got 15 priorities, right? And I just think that means you have no priorities. <laughs> like, by its nature. <laughs> yeah, and, and also people who say, I've got this for the next three years. And it'll be kind of going back to my change point, really. Uh, and, mm. and certainly, you know, my approach to delivering change is we do what's coming up for the next three months and then we look at it again because you've got to be course correcting all the time, haven't you? Um, I mean, it can be uncomfortable for people to do that. You know, I've yeah, certainly yeah. worked with teams yeah, where yeah. I'm working on a project at the moment. I think we're on our 16th version of the approach that we use to, do, to, to support change because we're constantly curious and feeding yeah. and learning and stopping and smashing it up where we need to and starting again. And for people who like that, it's great because they're curious and they like to be outside of their comfort zone. But for some people, they find that completely exhausting. Mm, yeah. Because yeah. they just go, actually, yeah. I just can we just stick to something for a while longer and yeah. keep going? So Yeah, I, I definitely have an energy about me which is very curious and and sort of relentless. And I know that that drives some people in my team insane um, sometimes as well who who are much more... Uh, they'd much rather like you know manage things and maintain things in a really like beautiful way than be constantly changing those things and I'm always sort of pushing for the the change and the optimization making it better and all that sort of thing or like changing my mind and ditching things it sounds like you're also often the sort of the hired in curiosity right like that's a thing that comes naturally to you is to question everything and to be curious um, so do you ever find there's like a downside to to your curiosity when uh, when you're when you're brought in somewhere? Do you ever find that like you're questioning the wrong things or questioning too much? Yeah. And, and it's always about balance. And so it's about seeking feedback, I think. So I yeah. try and make sure when I start somewhere that 
I do a feedback check-in after a week, after a month, after three months, I get some soundings about how it's landing. Um, somebody I work with said, um, if it wasn't for the fact that I was a people-centered individual, that kind of curiosity, drive and energy would be yeah. exhausting yeah. for yeah. teams. Yeah. So you, yeah. You, yeah. you have to do that. It's the how being more important than the what again. You have to do that with people front and center and how you take them on that journey else it's just intimidating and demanding i think mm. um yeah indeed yeah one thing i'm talking about a lot at the moment um with my work on kindness and stuff is um, the idea of truth and grace so yeah you need to be driving through the truth of the scenario but also you've got to do it with uh, a very people-centered you know kind approach at the same time and compassion. You know, if I think yeah. about some of the project people I work with when I was saying the only certain thing about that lovely Gantt chart is it's wrong. You know, they want to do 12,000 lines of a project plan and you try and explain that things are going to iterate and change. So if they're going to iterate and change that frequently, you're going to spend your whole time updating yeah. that plan, yeah. which is probably going to drive you nuts. But they'll still go, no, 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 but I want to do that. And then the third time they've updated it, they go, do you know what? You're right. We only need that level of detail for the next few weeks, don't we? Because it's all going to change. So you have to have the compassion and kindness to let them experience yeah, it for themselves. Yeah. Telling people doesn't work. And I think people learn best through experience. So you can you can frame it, but it always it's always better when people get there themselves. That's su that's such an important thing. I remember my my first job out of university was back working for the university on student led volunteering projects, and we used to describe it as what we're providing as the staff team who are supporting these student-led projects is we're creating the safe space for them to make mistakes and there's something really important about that i think is is you know allowing people to really sense it and feel it themselves um rather than just being like well i did this before and i know i know how to do it so it's where all yeah. the learning comes i mean it's, it's mm. possibly a bit trite but i always say to people so we fail we didn't fail we learned something there's no failure yeah. ever yeah. it's just yeah. learning and you know, I think about my early career as an entrepreneur and you know, the business that went bust. I learned way more from that than any of the ones that went well, mm. because the rest of it I could just have been lucky. Um, but there's, there's something and, and actually it's, it's one of the themes in the book about people fearing mistakes and how people cope with setbacks. Because if you're not naturally curious and going, oh, I'm going to bump up against something, see where it takes me. Oh, it's going to take me in a different direction. That's fine. Um, or I've tried that and it didn't work, or I tried that or I pitched it in an organisation and I got a knockback and I got a no. There's something about how you, you need to be able to respond to that to create a, an environment which gives you permission to be curious. Yeah. And I think it's one of the, the struggles for people managing in the middle of the organisation. They don't have the time and space to do that or the confidence or, you know, they don't work for an organisation like yours where you create permission for people to try things and, and, and learn from them. You know, um, mm. it's a real challenge, I think, in the world of work. For sure. I can't let that previous bit go without asking you, what was the thing that you learned about your business that went bust? Oh, what did you learn uh, from <laughs> Cash. Cash is king. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there we go. Uh, Should yeah, have known I mean, that one before, Julie. It, it's the simple answer. Yeah, we've been yeah, trading yeah. for for five years. Uh, we were very young, uh, paying ourselves mm. too much money, having too much fun, not keeping enough cash in the in the organisation. And but I've worked with a supplier over a period of time to to get a bunch of cash together for a big launch for something. And we handed the cash over to the supplier. They went bust the next day. We literally turned up at their office and there was nobody wow. there. And so wow. it wiped our entire cash reserves. So you always need more than you need. And uh, yeah. cash is king. There you go. Because yeah. <laughs> actually a lot of businesses go bust, not because they're not profitable, but just that they run out of cash. And, and I think before you run your own business, you don't quite recognize the difference of those two things, right? So the cash flow, what's also really um, difficult when you're, as I, as I found, because we did the approach of bootstrapping. So we didn't have outside investors. We didn't borrow from the banks. We basically just plowed all the profit back into the growth, right? But what you find is the hungrier the growth, the hungrier your cash flow is to just hold the money there. And so you have this kind of double thing of, you know, like want, like wanting to... Uh, have that money in the bank so that you can grow but also you're probably under pressure to increase people's salaries and to start paying yourself and all that or invest all at the same time so it kind of feels like in those early years like bootstrapping is bootstrapping is sort of cruelly and doubly hard because of the the sort of needs of cash flow right yeah yeah really hard mm. anything else that you learned from from that failure um spreading yourself too thin 
Um, so we started with, it was, it was my first business, so we started in, it's in the music business. Uh, and so we had a management company, a publishing company, a record company. We had like four different arms of one business. Right, trying right. to sp- spread yourself too thin across different things. Um, you know, build something and then uh, consolidate it and then build from there. Um, there. There's a pace to growth, I think. Um, and some business, and, and it depends on the sector you're in. You know, if you're in fast moving technology business, that pace is completely different to, to, to other sectors. And this, I'm afraid, is over 30 years ago now that I'm talking about, Graham. So the world has changed, you know. I handed out flyers and there were cassettes. I mean, you know, yeah, th- this is amazing. how old I am. Um, so, um, so, so, of course, the world has changed. But there's something about the pace of growth. Uh, and you can grow too quickly. Um, and that, uh, yeah. that's where, where, where yeah. companies run out of cash, I think, when you, when you overtrade like that. Yeah, I, was, I listened to a thing the other day with Stuart Lee, the comedian, and he was talking about how, how, how different it is um for new comedians now because it's all about your social media profile and he was kind of saying you know when i was starting out if you if you arranged a gig the way that you'd spread the word is you'd photocopy something and stick it on a tree yeah (laughs) exactly i totally related to that because like my teenage years where i was i was organizing gigs and running a fanzine and stuff it was all it was all about the photocopiers and the trees that was literally how you uh how you promoted stuff back in the day and um i'm i'm kind of nostalgic for it to be honest because it's just like just feels like so much simpler than instagram reels and everything else right i'm reading a novel at the moment there was a great line in there it's talking about uh irish history from a, a little while ago when electricity first came to a village and the the person who's reflecting back on this period in their life says i i wonder if we're now in a new century and it's lovely if you get old enough for your youth to become a fable of the past <laughs> and, and, and when I look back to some of the ways of working, which are so archaic now, you know, I talk to people yeah. about you know, one of my first jobs, there was a typing pool and I used to dictate mm, a letter and yeah. used to get sent to a typing pool. Then it would come back to me. And by the time you've done corrections, it might get sent in a week. And, and people look at me like I'm making it up. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, yeah. OK, I am now old enough for my early working life to be a fable. This is interesting. <laughs> Although I have to say I was on holiday in the north west of Ireland two summers ago. I think it was two summers ago, but I drove past a genuine sign that said internet this way. That like genuinely happened like two years ago. So uh, yeah, we, we shouldn't say that it's all, it's all solved and no, take it all true. for granted. It's all relative, right? Yeah, yeah. for sure. A um, couple of other things I wanted to talk to you about from the book. So you talk about influencing in the book and uh, power and, you know, having worked as you have, you know, on boards, in politics, in big public events, and also in startups and and different private companies and the NHS and and various places, um, you must have a lot to to say just about what power is. And I was actually thinking about it that power is in some senses a bit of a taboo because I just noticed as I was reading it in the book, I thought, I don't think I've ever talked about power on Beyond Busy before. So, What's your what's your sort of reflections on power from the the various places you've worked? And and I think it's interesting because we come from our own perspective, right? So I I don't think about power. Mm. I don't think about status. I don't think about hierarchy. Partly because I created my own environments, and partly because I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where I carry that badge. And we forget all the time the importance that has to people in organisations. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm in an, I'm working in an organisation at the moment with 700 people, and there is that that's what the exec says, or that's what my boss says. Whereas, of course, when you're in different environments where power is more distributed, you, you don't notice it so much. So I, I don't think about power in that sense. I think about um, influence. But people talk to us and, and managers definitely spoke to us about power in the research. It mattered to them, probably because yeah. where they are sitting in organisations in the middle there, where they're feeling powerless in some respects, kind of being asked to do both. But, you know, that horrible place where you have responsibility but not accountability necessarily. Yeah. Um, and so there's something for me about what's changed for organizations is they have um, the illusion of control because it was always an illusion um, over the power they have over their reputation and their people is gone because and it's not just about structures getting flatter it's about social media it's about opinion being out there it's about information exchange and channels being more free but it's also about um, the increasing need i think for collaboration across organizations so the, the power dynamic is softer. It's not about hierarchy. It's not about I'm yeah. to this person that instructs me. Uh, old fashioned though that is anyway. It's about how you um, win hearts and minds around common goals and common purpose. 
because organisations just don't work in isolation anymore. They work in communities, either competitive or uh, reciprocal communities. Yeah. yeah. And so, so there's something different for me about that. That's something that's very much changed in terms of the context and work, certainly in the 30 years that, that I've been at work. But still in big organisations, hierarchy matters, status matters, yeah. where people are on an org chart. And for you or I, I suspect that's almost an anathema. And it was a helpful reminder to me that that was something that people were still struggling with. Well, it's something that I'm conscious of when I go into organisations, right? Because then I have then for that day, I have to respect that hierarchy and be be conscious of what I'm saying about people in, in those hierarchies and so on. Um, what do you think are some of the ways that people can sort of adopt more like the new mindsets around power and, and perhaps, you know, build up that influence, even if they're not at the top of the hierarchy? Yeah, so it's all about networks and relationships. And this is something I learned way too late in my career because despite how chatty I am, I'm the world's worst networker. I mean, I literally <laughs> hate being in a room with people I don't know. Yeah. I stand like a wallflower going, I haven't got interesting things to say. Nobody, I don't want to get into a conversation. Wow, that really surprises me from what I know of you. That's that's really surprising. No, I hate it. People I know yeah. or when I've got a, public speaking, fine, I've got something to say and then people come and yeah. talk to you. When I have to go up and initiate a conversation with somebody, oh, I find it really, really hard. Wow. And, and I, so I was really late to the power of networks and, co- and collaboration. And I think networking in organisations, finding touch points, finding the people who can open the door, who can smooth the way, who can just be a sounding board for you is so important, particularly in larger organisations. Mm, yeah. So it's becoming networked. Um, you can do it through formal groups. You can do it informally through people you just... I was going to say bomb with over the water cooler, not that we've done that for, for a year or so. But So there's something there. And there's something about how organisations can enable this by just devolving decision-making, taking it out. The people who are furthest away from the problem are the least qualified to know the solution to it, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yet, yet it always goes that way, not that way. I'd, I'd love to turn organisation charts on, the, on their head because the people at the front line, whether they're answering a customer service call or whether they're doing something operationally in your business... They hold your reputation in your hands. It's got nothing to do yeah. with chief exec. Yeah. <laughs> it's the people at the front. So how do, how do we devolve decision-making? How do we get vo- more voices heard? Because um, you, you just get better outcomes that way. And it disrupts. It makes disrupting the power dynamic an easier thing for people to do if they're wedded in, in kind of status mm. and hierarchy. And what's that about practically then? So, I mean, back to the thing you were talking about earlier about creating the right kind of permissions and spaces for feedback. Is that is that a big part of it, or how how else can we try and get that decision making, you know, more devolved? I think it is. I think it's about listening. You know, when people talk about influencing, they always think about what they're going to say, not what they're going to hear. Mm, yeah, very and, true. And, and, and actually, too much people go in with their actually find out what people want, find out yeah. where the problems are. It's frame. Yeah, there was a particular challenge when I was working on the games, which we don't have time to go into, but it was an impossible ask. And I thought the only way I'm going to sell this is to find out what everybody else wants. So go listen, be curious, ask open questions. Don't tell them about what you're going to do and then frame what you've got in a way which is going to meet their needs. So influencing starts with listening, uh, not with talking. Yeah, which I guess brings us back to um, just as we started this conversation, we talked about change, but doing that in a way that is very people-centred and heart-centred and centred in empathy and you talk also in the book about the idea of trust being the glue. So is that something that you learnt how to do or is that something that, that was very innate to you and came very naturally to you? Uh, so I, I learnt it the hard way. Um, so I've always been sociable and I'm definitely an extrovert. But when it came to work, I was very task driven, not people driven. So that mm-hmm. classic kind of, you know, put the underpants on the outside of your trousers, exhort people, run up a hill, exhort people to follow you, have all the answers, yeah, yeah. all that kind of thing. Um, and, and I worked in a ridiculous way at a stupid pace until I burnt myself out and fell over at some point. Um, and, and I, you know, people say, oh, did you have a mental health crisis or a breakdown? I, I don't know what it was, but I slept for six weeks. I was exhausted. Right, I, I had yeah. all the physical hallmarks of it. And it forced me to really look at what was driving me to work the way that I did. So it doesn't mean that any of the practical skills or the task output or the delivery was bad, but what was driving it didn't come from a centred place. 
Yeah. And, and actually, when I when I learned that and I anchored myself back, you know, I used to think oh, authenticity is just another buzzword. But I really understand what it means to be your authentic self. You know, I used to be a work me and a personal me. And now there's just me. And I bring my whole self to work and have good days and I have bad. I don't have all the answers. And I start with people. I don't start with the task. And that fundamentally changed my working life in the last 20 years. Um, And it's so important for me to start with people where they're at, their motivation, what they want to get out of their work, and then give them an experience that's going to do that. And so I've become so passionate about really, truly authentic leadership and cultures driving performance. It's not a soft subject. It's a hard subject. It's like cash. It's like assets, right? You get the culture right. You get people pulling in the, in the same direction. You really can create magic. And you can't be people-centered unless you're empathetic because you mm. have to take the time to get to know your people. It's a bit like the point I was making about influencing. Yeah, every job I do, I spend 45 minutes to an hour with every member of my team and, and say, tell me about yourself. Not the job. Tell me about, give me your potted history. How did you come to be here? It's massively revealing. It's because mm. it's never what they've got on their name badge. It's, it's all yeah. the other stuff that got them to that point. And there's a richness about capability and experience and motivation in there, which if you just say, oh, well, Bob does that, you completely miss. And it enables you to think about what works for them in their world. It enables you to think about the, the, the um, way they need to operate at home in terms of their work-life balance and create a set of experiences which, which gets the best out of them. Um, and I had been so, in the early part of my career, you know, I wasn't a people ogre, you know, I was I was a sociable creature, but I started with there's a job to do, you know, stupidly off the scale, complete a finisher, get stuff done. Yeah. And now and now I don't I start with start with that end of things. So yeah, I learned mm. the hard way about that. That's really interesting. And so when you go into an organization, you're spending time with people one on one to really connect and, and to, to find that empathy. If you're in somewhere a bit longer term, what does that look like in terms of your the day-to-day operation of that and and you know how do you manifest that that sort of sense of trust and empathy with people just you know day-to-day uh, so i think it's about being again it's about listening and it's i think it's about creating a culture of feedback i think all the best organizations and teams operate with feedback it's kind of what we were saying earlier about the productive mm. tension yeah. and, and, and your approach to smashing stuff up right it, it's about creating an environment where people see that it's okay to challenge um, and, and I do that through, I do a regular weekly blog in, in every job, you know, it's a set of communication that frames it. I do it in the way we have meetings where we always ask at the end of it, is it still working? Do we need to change anything? I do it by sharing things that mistakes that I've made, things that we tried but didn't work. You know, it, it's it's all about um, being OK to be human. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, because we're all people and we're all different kinds of people. And. The things that make us have good days and bad are different. And um, I think by listening, you can also organise work in ways. So I always say, ask people, what does a good day for you mean? I, you know, when you go home and you punch the air with joy, you go, get in. That was a great day. And conversely, when you go home and you kick the cat or the dog or need a and t or whatever it is because you've had a rubbish day. What are the things that make you feel like that? Mm, and then I'm really aware yeah. of those things. And then when I'm tasking or when we're doing stuff as a team, it's like, don't put somebody in a position like that where... It's, it's really not going to play to their strengths. or mm. And that's different to pushing people out of their comfort zone and trying to encourage people to be curious. It's about being mindful about where people's natural boundaries are and being respectful of that. And I think when people yeah. see that, they start to trust. And you know, some people trust immediately. Some people, you have to earn trust. But it, it's really old-fashioned, but it's true. You know, you've got to walk, you've got to walk the talk, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know... I, I often have this little phrase which I share when I'm doing, you know, keynote Q&As and stuff. When we get onto people management, is to, is to basically say the the most important thing to remember about managing people is that humans are weird. Like we're we are all weird, right? And we're all different, and uh, and we have all these weird narratives that we've spun ourselves for thirty years, and um, you know, and biases and and trauma and all these kind of things that just impact the way we show up and I just think it's a really important starting point is to just say hey we're all weird how are you weird you know and start kind of start from there which really feels like what you're doing there with that whole what's a great day what does that look like what does a rubbish day look like what are the things that really bug you you know just asking those kind of questions I think that's so important 
Yeah, well, and, and you, but you have to do it. You have to really care about it and be interested yeah. in it. You know, I worked yeah. with a consultant once who was a brilliant consultant, and by that I mean the kind of consultant who needs to be the cleverest person in the room because that's what they're being hired to be. Mm. So they show up, they're brilliant, they're clever, they're insightful, they give you expertise. Terrible leader. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So ended up in a job yeah. where I flipped to leading the team rather than being the external consultant, and oh my lord, couldn't manage the team because not remotely interested. Not people-centred mm. at all. Intellectually brilliant, but yeah. not people-centred. And, and I think it's recognising, as you say, people are weird, but we all play to different strengths. And it's finding yeah. Yeah. finding your groove, isn't it? And, and what's what's right for you is, is so important. I like the what's weird about you. That's great. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think I also heard that from Alain de Botton about relationships as well. Um, so he's got a, one of his School of Life videos is is kind of about how to succeed in dating um which i need to watch again i think but uh, that's a whole nother story <laughs> um, but he has this amazing thing where he's like the first thing you should do on a first date is you both sit down and just and you tell each other how you're weird um and he also has this lovely sort of question at the beginning where he says to the audience who thinks they're easy to live with and like half the Room put their hand up, and it's just like if you think you're easy to live with, you are nuts. Like we are all really hard to live with. Like, well, so, it yeah, reminds me of a couple of things where I've done culture change work, where people talk about, you know, a classic exercise: put your hands up if you've ever worked for a jerk of a boss. Yeah, everybody puts their hands up. <laughs> right, put yeah. your hand up if anybody here's a jerk of a boss. Nobody puts their hands up, other than the bright spark, one of them. Yeah, you know, they're right. always in a group. And you go, well, that that can't be right, can it? I mean, it just can't be. I can't be right. And the same with the, the productive tension point. Um, I remember working with a board years ago where a facilitator described in a different way. He talked about positive conflict. We did a scale of like one to ten with kind of obstructive aggression, artificial harmony, and then the sweet spot being in the middle. And he said, and the mm. artificial harmony is like people in a room going, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that, yeah. No, that's fine. And then leaving the room and complaining about it. And by the way, that works at home too. No, yes, darling, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. And this is the point about work and home. These skill sets, they're a read across, aren't they? So mm. there you go. Weirdness for dating as well as for work. Yeah, so um, Chris Kisley, who I'm uh, working with on the Kindness and Leadership Programme, she has a phrase which is like, um, like nice in meetings is where you go along to get along. Right. So you go, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you, you, you nod along um, so that there's that harmony. But then when you leave the room, you bitch about them. And so it's actually, you know, it's very nice, but it's actually not kind to work in that way. And so kindness looks more like instead of nodding along, you you tell the truth in a way that is totally for that person and connects with that person but you actually tell it like it is and I disagree or actually I think you're doing this wrong or you know and actually to to tell that truth in a way that's kind is a much more important thing than that sort of artificial harmony that you talk about completely and it's why feedback is so important I the fe it puts mm. fear of dread into people when you talk about feedback because it's done yeah. so badly right but not providing feedback to people is unhelpful really yeah. unhelpful yeah. Um, yeah I remember uh, doing work with a big startup years ago in fact the case studies in in the book um, and it was a, 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 at the time very out there, holistic alternative therapies kind of stuff. Let's put it this way. The founder said he didn't want to be chief executive, he wanted to be called the gardener of the I saw this in the book and then the PA is called and the, the, and the PA, PA to the Gardener of the Dream, the Dream Orchard. Orchard. Yeah. So funny. And then, you know, a dour Scotsman FD from a big VC <laughs> banking firm who was terrible and nobody had given him feedback in his career. And finally, I won't spoil the story, but somebody gives him feedback and he goes, you know what? Nobody ever told me that. I've been working mm. for 35 years and nobody ever told me. That's not kind. That's not yeah. helpful. Yeah. That doesn't help people grow or develop, does it? Feedback is so important. Auntie Brené has a lovely quote which is um clear is kind unclear is unkind i really like that which feels like a really uh good place to uh wrap up this conversation because it feels like um feedback and purpose and uh and and being people-centered have just been really strong themes um through this and I, i've just really enjoyed uh talking to you about it so if people want to get hold of the book and um, the book's own your day and if people want to connect with you, um, do you want to just uh, tell people how they can uh, find out more? Yeah, so uh, you get it own your day uh, at Substack, 
Um, and so there's going to be a little, uh, we're published on the 11th of May. We're going to be doing some weekly newsletters and some information about how you can get involved, come along to a launch, have some fun. Uh, you can pre-order the book on Amazon and Hive and bookshop.org. I'll give you all the blurb for the podcast notes. And if you want to get hold of me, I'm on Twitter at Julie Nerney. Um, my website's julienerney.co.uk. Great stuff. And so, there are many Nernies on LinkedIn, so I shan't, yeah, that's easy to find. <laughs> <laughs> and just before we start recording, you said to me that you are a regular listener to Beyond Busy. So uh, my curiosity is, how is it on the other end of it? Uh, this is whizzed by. So uh, <laughs> I, I could, goes quick, it's, right? Yeah, it goes really quick. And um, it's really easy conversation. And anybody who's nervous about doing this, don't worry. This is dead easy. If you like to chat, oh, thank you, you ask uh, great questions. So, yeah, it's been lovely to be on the other side of it. Well, it's been great having you. So, yeah, Julie, thanks so much for being on Beyond Busy. My pleasure. Thanks, Graham. So there you go, Julie Nerney. Hope you enjoyed that one. And um, it's been a week of books for me. I've had delivery of my author copies of How to Fix Meetings. Very exciting. It's always one of those moments where the box arrives and you know what it's going to be. And it contains the 10 free copies that the publisher gives you, which after all your sweat and toil and then your very uh, low percentage of the sales that you get it's like feels like a bit miserly to only give you 10 but anyway you get a box of 10 that's pretty much industry standard and when you open it up there's always this kind of butterflies moment where you look at the spine and check that your name is spelled correctly and just flick through the pages and make sure that they're all fine in fact I'll tell you a really quick story is when I self-published how to be a productivity ninja for the first time uh, we had about four different people working on it. We had a typesetter, we had a copywriter, I had an editor that I was working with. Um, and all of these people were, you know, really supporting me in writing this book. And all of us, including me, had missed the fact that when it got printed and it was all laid out on the page by the typesetter, uh, page four and page five were the same. <laughs> right? And so, like, there was this awful moment where the the typesetter realised it and it was too late. It had already gone to print. And I remember calling the printers because there was no publisher. It was just me. And I called the printer and they'd gone home for the night. And it was like five o'clock. I had this whole night thinking that all the money that I'd plowed into this book, which was at the time pretty much like all the money I had in the world, uh, was all going to just be pulped and go to waste. And it turns out that what happens with books is... Books are printed in batches of 16 pages, right? So what they did is they were able to just take out that first 16 pages that was wrong. They charged me about 300 quid more to just reprint those first 16 pages. And then you stitch it all back together with, you know, all the previous ones. So all was not lost, but there was a very uncomfortable, not much sleep evening where I had to figure that one out. But that was uh, back in the early days of of How to Be a Productivity Ninja being uh, self-published and... Uh, not having, you know, the luxury of uh, a courier just sends you 10 for free in the post. But anyway, yeah, so How to Fix Meetings. I'm really proud of it and I would love you to go and order a copy. So I've said this before and actually had some people um, send me little tags on LinkedIn and stuff um, when I basically said, listen, guys, I do this podcast for free. It's a labour of love. I don't want to put advertising in it. But what it means is just if you really love these episodes, when I have a new book coming out, please just go buy the book. It's a tenner and that can be your way to just support the podcast and I'll really appreciate it. So please go and buy How to Fix Meetings. It's available now. It's on uh, Amazon. It's also on bookshop.org if you don't want to buy it from Uncle Jeff. And it's also in bookshops. It's in Waterstones and um, and WX Miss Travel and various places. So uh, yeah, if you go and um, and if it's not there, go into your bookshop and just order it. Because uh, that just alerts the bookshop to, hey, maybe this is a book that we need to start stocking. So if your bookshop locally does not have how to fix meetings, then uh, make them do it. Make them order it in. So um, that's what I've been doing this week is, uh, you know, really starting to gear up for publicity around that. We did a couple of really good webinars, um, really high uh, attendance numbers. Um, on the subject of how to fix meetings myself and Haley, my co-author we'll put one of those on YouTube and uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes here so you can go and um, check out um, me and Haley talking about the book if you want to find out a bit more and I've also been writing so I've got this uh, first first deadline for uh, my new book which is about kindness and leadership 
And I've been a bit behind, to be honest. It's been a bit rough behind the scenes, um, you know, just for me and the team uh, in the last few weeks. But yeah, getting through all of that and um, it's just been that I'm a bit behind, basically. On uh, been behind both on the podcast and also on, on the book. So like, you know, the two main things. I've had some really good client work as well, which is always a nice thing to be distracted with. But just means I'm a bit behind. So I've been doing uh, lots of basking in the glory of the new book and also just like absolutely hunkering down on the new one and um yeah not really giving myself the time to to breathe and uh and and fully save a book five because I'm just focused on book six and that's kind of like I've been thinking about that a lot recently I kind of feel like that's um just something I do quite a lot is I don't necessarily always enjoy the good parts I'm always kind of on to the next thing on to the next thing on to the next thing and I'm going to work on that and try and change that about me so yeah, all good. That's what I've been up to. Um, just want to say um, a huge thank you actually to Alice and Emily for pulling this episode out of the bag. So thank you to Alice and Emily. Um, it's just been so reassuring to be able to concentrate on what I need to do, um, knowing that it's all in safe hands with the podcast. So thank you, Alice and Emily. And also thank you to Think Productive, who are our sponsors for the episode. Go to thinkproductive.com. You should know the drill by now. If you would like to hear more about productivity, training, workshops, and all the other stuff that we do as well. We do a whole bunch of other stuff outside of productivity these days as well. Um, So we can help your organization with all the stuff that we talk about in the podcast. Check out thinkproductive.com. As always, you can get show notes. You can get all the links to the previous episodes over at getbeyondbusy.com and as always we'll be back next week we'll see you then with another episode until then enjoy the sunshine and take care bye for now